welcome to the Acupuncture Outsider podcast. My name is Richard Hazel, and in the time it takes for you to commute to or from work, I hope to have shared something of interest about orthopedic acupuncture using motor points, trigger points, myofascial slings, uh, neurofunctional acupuncture, segmental treatments, anything that crosses my mind that seems to be of interest. I hope you'll enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Acupuncture Outsider. This is Richard Hazel, and today I want to talk a little bit about a, uh, a new patient that got me thinking about another topic, uh, which is reciprocal inhibition. So my 90-something-year-old drop foot patient is a new patient of mine. Um, apparently, he had sciatica about a year ago, left him with a drop foot. He recovered from the sciatica via um, physical therapy. And so his son brought him in, and he's he's great. I mean, I hope that at, at that age that I am as lucid and fit as this man. He, he hasn't been able to do much cycling because of the drop foot. But before his sciatica, he was very physically active, um, a lot of... Um, um, cycling and other things and he's um and he's you know like mentally completely lucid and speaks very eloquently and um without i mean probably you know i probably pause more than he does he's 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 really not looking like his age um however he has a drop foot and um, so I, you know, I, I gave him the, the upfront warning that everybody's different and everybody doesn't respond the same way and not all drop foot is the same and the chronicity matters and the fact that it's about a little over a year, um, we have to wait and see. Uh, I would, I recommend that, that we treat at least three to five times to see if we're going to get the you know, the best results. However, I also told them it's not uncommon that someone feels some improvement after the first treatment because we could often get some firing of the muscles that that do dorsiflexion. And the main ones that I focus on on the very first visit, because um, I, I don't get into the little extensors of the toes and the little extensor uh like the the uh, Peronius tercius on the first visit, I really want to hit the big gu- big guns, the tibialis anterior, the extensor digitorum longus, the the extensor hallucis longus, and the peroneals. Um, so that's what I focus on, and and I did some electric stim first at one hertz for about ten minutes, and then I changed it to a discontinuous thirty hertz. Uh, so that it would contract for three seconds at 30 hertz and then relax. And I put it at a comfortable level. And, and we were getting really good response from his muscles, uh, all the muscles that I was treating. I didn't see much uh, extension of the extensor halysis longus, but I'm not too worried about that because 
since it is inhibited, I wasn't really too worried about getting the exact location for that one. I just want to get into the muscle and um, going forward as we see better improvements, I will get a lot pickier about my motor point location on the big toe. But um, but we were seeing really good movement. And by the way, so I did muscle testing before just to get a baseline and his tibialis anterior was actually functioning. So he was actually able to lift his foot a bit. He just couldn't move his toes. He couldn't lift his toes, could not evert at all, but he doesn't have much atrophy. So I'm hopeful, you know, we're going to get some good results. Um, and in fact, after treatment, I and I did do a nerve trunk stimulation for the deep peroneal nerve as well. And he was able to start lifting his toes and he was everting a bit when he would when he would dorsiflex. So, and his son was remarking at it because I think his son has been on top of this the whole time and working. He's he's still getting physical therapy three times a week. So, um, so I'm feeling pretty optimistic for him. One thing I noticed in the initial exam was his lack of. Uh, passive dorsiflexion his soleus gastrox tibialis posterior um, flexor digitorum longus all those muscles are very tight and you know on a 90 year old i kind of expect that as a normal anyway and i decided to spend our time first on the front of his leg let's get a sense of how much we can wake this up but my feelings are that because of reciprocal inhibition, the extreme tension in the, the uh, plantar flexors will reciprocally inhibit his ability to dorsiflex and lift his foot off the floor. So I really can't leave those muscles that tight and hope for the best results possible. So. So coming up this week, when I see him, we're going to start with him prone so that I can treat gastrox and soleus first, and then we'll end with a much, very similar treatment to what I did this week. Um, so I was thinking about reciprocal inhibition, and you know, um, it's, it's something that Vladimir Yanda would talk about a lot. Uh, it was, I guess, first, I don't know, discovered or explained by Sherrington in the early 20th century. I think around 1913, he published his his findings. Um, and I think that some people, uh, there's always people uh, who want to make a name for themselves by, you know, contradicting what people have been seeing clinically for a long time and and so they there are people who don't believe in reciprocal inhibition but for the rest of the world of science um it is a thing and i was uh i was looking recently at a paper and i brought this up so i could tell you the name of the journal um the journal is the Journal of Neurophysiology, Volume 119, published in May 2018. And the, the article, research article, 
is called reciprocal inhibition between motor neurons of the tibialis anterior and triceps serrae in humans. So triceps serrae is, is the gastrox and soleus as a group that plantar flex. So their test subjects were, they used a surface EMG and they did isometric contractions and then the, the strength um, was recorded so that they could um, first stimulate the uh, tibial nerve trunk and then the other would be the uh, deep peroneal uh, nerve trunk and they would be doing isometric holds to basically record how much reciprocal inhibition there was when the antagonist is being stimulated. So, and, and you know, a short type muscle, even if it's not being used, is still able to reciprocally inhibit the, the agonist. So you don't have to be using the muscle for it to be inhibited. And for people who are new to this, this terminology, um, the brief explanation that you typically will see, we'll, we'll talk about triceps and biceps. So the, uh, the body, the spinal segment, can inhibit the antagonist group so that it will relax. So basically, when you use your biceps uh, to lift something or do a curl at the gym, the triceps need to completely shut off and, and relax and stretch so so that's reciprocal inhibition and it's done at the seg at the spinal segment via motor neurons and there's you know feedback from the muscle spindles of the muscle that's that's um that's engaging so um so what you'll see uh in uh treating muscle imbalances is that you have a situation where maybe someone's having knee pain and you suspect the quads are uh, too short and tight, and maybe they've even had surgery and there's inhibition in the quads so they can't fire as well. And you find that part of that inhibition is being caused by the tight hamstrings. They're not even need, they don't even need to be engaged. Just, just being short and tight, the signaling from muscle spindles goes to the spinal segment and tells it to shut off the quads. Because the hamstrings are short, so the the body reads that as being engaged. So then naturally the quads need to relax and stretch. But that's not really what's happening. I mean, that's not necessarily what the person is trying to do. The person is trying to use the quads. And the tight hamstrings are telling the spinal segment to shut off the quads because they need to relax. But you're saying, no, I'm trying to actually go up the stairs and use my quads. So there's an inhibition of the quads due to the tension being read by muscle spindles in the hamstrings. So we need to release the, the tension on the hamstrings so that the quads fire properly and you don't overuse certain muscles, um, which will lead to pain. Okay, so... The same thing happens with the drop foot, I believe. Um, we need to address, because if the drop foot, you know, it's weak, it's weak on extension of the ankle. It's weak on lifting the foot, dorsiflexion, extension. 
those functions are being weakened, not just by nerve damage, and I'm not saying he doesn't have it, he does, his his deep peroneal nerve is definitely damaged by that sciatica flare. Um, however, there is very likely also reciprocal inhibition by the triceps surae muscles. So, so we need to treat both sides of the leg in this situation. And I think it's just, um, it's just one of the things I was thinking about. And I was thinking about all the ways that reciprocal inhibition could be holding back the progress of my patients. And, and I'm starting to, you know, like note to self. Um, I'm seeing people, you know, when I see a lot of people with um, deep gluteal syndrome and I'm treating the deep rotators for uh, their sciatica, we're treating the piriformis, we're treating the gemelli, the obturator internus, we're treating the glute max to try to get it firing better, we're treating the gluteus medius because it's super tight and that makes it weak. We want all of these muscles to be able to stabilize the SI joint, the hamstrings, sometimes even adductor magnus uh, gets involved. All of these muscles need to help stabilize the SI joint and the underlying weakness, the reason that these muscles have overworked is usually that the gluteus maximus is inhibited. And there, you know, that's a completely different podcast to talk about gluteal amnesia or muscles, you know, the glutes that always shut off. But, you know, I'm thinking like note to self. When you're trying, when you're in the phase that the patient is now out of pain and they're working on gluteal activation, hopefully with somebody like a physical or physiotherapist, then I can help them more by treating a lot of the tension from the hip flexors. I, I always think about psoas, and usually for deep gluteal syndrome, the psoas is gonna get treated because I, I also am considering, even like with regular sciatica, that there, there's some spinal component here, L5S1 compression, let's consider, or L, you know, even L4-5 um, could tighten some of these muscles in the pelvis. So I, I want to, to decrease any excess lumbar lordosis. We want normal lumbar lordosis. We don't want excess lumbar lordosis. And part of that can come from the psoas being tight. So I will almost always treat the psoas for somebody with sciatica or uh, lumbar issue, any kind of um, anything that looks like a lumbar uh, disc compressions, uh, whatever the diagnosis is, you know, treating the psoas is just going to be functionally helpful for taking pressure off of those discs and nerve roots. But, but then I don't think I always think of it as like, should I, you know, be treating all of the hip flexors? So I will, on someone with deep gluteal syndrome, I will be treating the TFL and the gluteus minimus because they can put internal rotation on the hip and I don't want the antagonist external rotators to fight against internal rotation. So that, that would always get treated by me for someone with a sciatica. Um, but I can't say that I always treat the sartorius 
and the rectus femoris for the for these people. I probably end up treating the psoas, and I will always treat the TFL and the glute men. And the glute men, I talked about last week how even though it's not a hip flexor, it can um, increase the anterior pelvic tilt because of the fiber orientation that goes to the front of the hip joint. Um, and then that said, you know, if I'm treating the psoas, I'm probably also relaxing the iliacus, which can also increase the anterior pelvic tilt. So I'm getting a lot of that just by thinking about the the lumbar lordosis and the external rotators, and and of course um, the psoas will shut off the glute max. So I'm thinking about that, but now I'm like going through my head and thinking, you know, maybe. I need to really think a lot more about something like rectus femoris because we know when you do a, a strength, uh, we do a length test for the quads, very often you'll see the person's hip come up off the table a bit because of tension in the quad. So just kind of going through my in my head, it's not like I've been unsuccessful with patients in fact, I would say I have a very high success rate for sciatica, but we can always improve, right? We can always improve our our um, treatment. So I'm just starting to kind of think about more more about how can I consider reciprocal inhibition and treatment of it to improve the results for my patients. And so one of the things I, I guess I'm thinking about this week is is things like the rectus femoris for these uh, sciatica patients, and then also um, for the drop foot. You know, um, I usually end up having to treat the soleus and gastrox anyway for the same you know same re- reason. I see that the ankle mobility is not good, but I think it's worth um, considering more for drop foot. To that reciprocal inhibition could be at least some percentage of the inhibition of those muscles on um, being able to extend the ankle or dorsiflex. So that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm doing this week. And of course, if I have great results with this new 90-something-year-old patient, then I will report back about you know what, what we saw and how many visits, et cetera. I'm hopeful. I think he's going to end up doing really, really well. Um, so that is, uh, I think, enough for this week. Just um, putting it out there that, you know, reciprocal inhibition is real. And um, if if there's something you've been struggling with with a patient, maybe start considering the antagonists that could be inhibiting their their strength um, you might see that on people whose gluteus medius is uh, not firing and they're doing all their clamshell exercises, they're doing their bands, they're bridging, etc. Um, maybe consider looking into how short and tight their adductors are because even though they're not having groin pain or they're not having symptoms from tight adductors, just the shortening of those muscles could be sending signals to the spinal segment via those those um, 
muscle spindles in the adductors. It could just be sending white noise, you know, to the to the spinal segment, telling it to shut off abductors. So um, it's worth considering if you're if you've been struggling with somebody who can't activate certain muscles. Think about the antagonists that could just be sitting there doing nothing and sending inhibitory signals to the spinal segment and telling it to shut off. Okay, so that's that's it for, for this week. Um, hope you have a good week. Talk to you soon.